this morning, we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, our passage can be found on page 882 in the Pew Bible. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll pull the verses up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So what is it that makes believers succeed in the end? You know, what, what is it that brings us into that glorious promised land uh, that endures, that, that enables a believer to endure to the very end of their life? and come into the presence of God. Because there are two great errors that Christians in the church can make here. One is to think and act as if all things depend upon God such that it doesn't matter really what we do or say or think, whether we have a commitment to holiness, to obedience to the commands of Christ, to gather together on the Lord's Day with believers, to uh, to meditate and to enrich ourselves uh, in the word of God, to, to pray and engage in the spiritual disciplines, uh, that these things just don't really matter because God is love and, and we're saved by grace. And so, and so obedience and holiness and all those things aren't really, that, that's what other people are concerned about, but God isn't really that concerned about it. That's the first error. The reverse error is to, is to act as though all depends upon the will of the disciples. All depends upon the actions and the words of the disciple. Everything is upon me and what I do and how I act and how I express my will and my desires. And so the first error uh, will lead to a, a spiritual lawlessness and spiritual laziness. Usually the spiritual laziness will lead to the spiritual lawlessness. The second error leads to legalism, spiritual despair, Eventually, probably both. If you're a legalist and you're an honest legalist long enough, uh, you, you will finally realize that you can't do it. Unless you're a very prideful legalist and you just are blinded and you think, yeah, I'm just the one doing it. But uh, if not, you end up like Martin Luther, the monk, who, is, who could see that he was the biggest legalist there ever was, <laughs> except maybe for the Apostle Paul. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, and, he, uh, and realized he could not do it. So, well, we have to be wary then of shipwrecking our faith on these two great rocks. But thankfully, Christ, in this text, presents us with a path between those rocks and that we can sail through. And so we find here what we can call the secret of unfailing faith. Yes, today, the secret of unfailing faith can be yours for free. I'm not going to charge you. Uh, but, um, uh, but the secret of unfailing faith 
is presented to us in Satan's demand, Jesus' prayer, and Peter's correction. We'll look at each of those this morning. First, Satan's demand in verse 31. Jesus reveals to Peter Satan's desire, which is to destroy the people of God, uh, starting with the disciples. And Jesus gives a very vivid picture. He says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you. But what does that mean? And so we need to reflect upon how is it that Satan sifts disciples? That word sifting is a reference to the uh, process of separating wheat from the chaff and the other junk you don't want mixed in with the wheat. Uh, Metaphorically, it means to put a person through various trials and intense suffering uh, to test the genuineness of their faith. And now, it's, uh, you know, Satan actually does this very thing in the book of Job, where he demands to prove Job's sincerity and faith by taking everything away from him. He goes to God and says, the only reason Job loves you and worships you is because you gave him everything. You blessed him. If you, but if you take it all away, he'll curse you. And so, and so, and so God allows Job to be tested. Now, what disturbs most modern readers about that book is is that God gives Satan permission to do so, to test Job in this way. And even but even though God sets limits on what Satan can do, but he lets Satan do more and more. He allows Satan to do it. And but the answer to that kind of thing that disturbs the the mind of the modern reader is a powerful one, because at the end of the book of Job, God comes to Job. And without giving him an explanation for his trials, he instead reminds Job that, that, that he is the God who made everything. He is the God that sustains the created order. And thus, he is worthy of Job's trust, even if Job doesn't understand why what has happened to him has happened to him. And Job, for his part, backs down from his demands for his day in court. He backs down from his demands for God to explain exactly why these things happen to him. And he worships God in humility and in the end is blessed, even doubly uh, blessed than he was before. Now, what is interesting is that while it is clear in the Psalms and other places in the scripture, such as the book of Job, that testing is painful, confusing, and can even cause God's people to cry out to him, there is never a question in the scriptures about God's right to do it. Uh, It's even the psalmists who cry out, how long and why, O Lord, have you let this happen? Even they who cry those out, they do so with a reverence for God's authority. Never in the Psalms do you find them saying, God, you had no right. They just say, God, I don't understand. And how long will this last? Will it end? Peter, in his first letter, describes the testing of the genuineness of the faith of Christians as gold being purified of its impurities in a furnace. And that this affliction, this hardship that is testing their faith, is a part of their sanctification, which in the end will result in the fullness of their salvation in glory. Their suffering 
was a part of God's sanctifying plan for their life. The concern, biblically, is not whether God is sovereign, whether he is in control, or whether he has the right to test his people. The concern, biblically, is whether or not God's people will continue to follow the Lord in the midst of hardship and not give up. Now the you, when Peter said, when Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, de- Satan has demanded to sift you, that you is not singular, it's plural. It's properly speaking, it's y'all. It is proper, by the way. So, so but Jesus is saying that, that Satan is demanding to put not just Peter, but all of the disciples to the test. He wants to assault their faith and their allegiance to their master. Satan has gone after Jesus once already in the Gospel of Luke and in the temptation in the wilderness. And now he's back. And he is going to see this through to the killing of the Son of God. And in the process, he will be attacking the disciples and putting them through the sifter, as it were, with full confidence that their faith will fail. That they will abandon God, they will abandon Christ forever, that they will shake their fist and say, this isn't worth it, I'm done, I'm going back to being a pagan, or I'm going back to, I'm, going, I'm turning away from Christ forever, and walk away, and go back to uh, just simply the unfulfilled Jewish expectation found in the Old Testament. And these are two of Satan's primary means of attacking our faith. Suffering as well as moral and spiritual failure. Those are the two primary means. Suffering and failure of the moral and spiritual kind by which Satan tests our faith. And this reminds us that even today we must be on our guard. Satan is often referred to, especially in the Old Testament, as he's not called Satan, he's called the adversary. That's what literally the Hebrew word refers to him as. He shows up not only in the book of Job, but he shows up in Zechariah's vision uh, in in that prophet's book as the the one who is prosecuting the high priest as the representative of the uh, the people of God before the angel of the Lord. And I preached a sermon on that once, and uh, R.C. Sproul even wrote a children's book about it (laughs) called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. Uh, because the priest was covered with uh, um, uh, clothes that were essentially, if you biblically speaking, I define the word as human excrement. <laughs> that, that is on there. He's defiled before the God, and, and the adversary is there essentially prosecuting him before the angel of the Lord. And the Lord redeems uh, the high priest and the people. Uh, but Satan is the adversary. And, and, and Peter, later on in his, uh, in the, his first letter, which we referenced already, but he describes in 1 Peter chapter 5, Satan as a roaring, prowling lion looking for someone to devour. He is an active force for evil, and he seeks the destruction of the church. And what is Peter's advice here in, in 1 Peter 5? He says to humble ourselves before God. That's the first thing he says, to humble ourselves before the Lord. And to wait for him to lift us up out of our low suffering position. He tells Christians to be sober-minded and watchful. Because every time, uh, because, because, every t- because, there's, uh, because times of prosperity and times of suffering present temptations 
to walk away from the Lord. And so Satan is not just going after the disciples here. He is going after all the disciples of Jesus Christ in every age. The point here is simply that uh, we have an enemy. And we, and we have an enemy that has lived longer than any of us, who knows the scriptures better than any of us, who has studied human weakness uh, better than any of us. And so Satan's assaults are not going to be, you know, the manifestations of dark, terrifying demons like we see on TV or in movies. Satan's assaults are going to come in glittering prizes. They're going to come in things that appeal to us. They're going to come in the, in the forms of puffing up of our pride, sliding us into sexual immorality, dulling our hearts toward the word of God and the grace of God to the point where we believe it's irrelevant. And so we should now, and, and look, we don't need to see Satan behind every rock and tree, but we would be absolute fools to not, uh, to, to ignore the scriptures and to live as if Satan does not exist or that we don't have the flesh to contend with. That is what we're up against. Satan's demand here reveals his heart's desire to destroy the church. But thankfully, we also have Jesus' prayer in verse 32. And verse 32 highlights for us exactly how it is that Christ intercedes for us. Jesus warns Peter about Satan's impending attack, uh, but he also comforts Peter by the fact that he has already prayed for him. And isn't that a wonderful thing? If you could hear Jesus verbally tell you, don't worry. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's the biggest shot in the arm you could ever get. And so Christ says to Peter that the greatest assault of his, uh, of, upon his faith is about to come and is coming from no less than the president and CEO of evil himself. But Peter's faith will not fail because Christ has interceded for him. And Christian... Do you know that Christ still intercedes for you? That he prayed for you, as recorded in John 17, in what's called his high priestly prayer. He prayed for you there. He stands as a living intercession for you in heaven. He remains an unyielding advocate for you before God the Father. And do you know that though the hardest struggles and trials of your life may still lay ahead, especially for the young ones here, yet your faith will not fail because Christ intercedes for you. The Apostle Paul even added to that in Romans chapter 8, where he says, look, all y'all don't even know how to pray for how to pray and what to pray for. But even though you don't, you should know that the Holy Spirit is interceding for you with groanings beyond your understanding. You have Christ interceding for you. You have the Holy Spirit interceding for you. Your faith will not fail. J.C. Ryle, the bishop, said, and I've looked at him a lot in this series lately and I've just been loving it but he says the continued existence of grace in a believer's heart is a great standing miracle 
His enemies are so mighty, his strength so small, his, this world so full of snares, his heart so weak, that it seems at first impossible for him to reach heaven. But the passage, this passage before us, explains his safety. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God who ever lives to make intercession for him. There is a watchful advocate who is daily pleading for him, seeing all his daily necessities, obtaining daily supplies of mercy and grace for his soul. His grace never altogether dies because Christ always lives to intercede. We need to hear that. It's not all up to us. But we need to pause and really contemplate exactly what unfailing faith looks like. Because there's something we know, because we've probably read the gospel before. Um, Jesus is going to die. And Peter is about to fail and fail hard. In fact, Jesus tells him he's going to. He's going to deny Christ. The other disciples are going to abandon the Lord. And this leads us to a very necessary question to ask. Did Christ's prayer fail? He prayed for that Peter's faith would not fail, and then Peter goes on to deny him three times. Did Christ's prayer fail? Now, we're good Christians. We're here on Sunday. We're in church. The answer, of course, is no. Okay, we have to say that. But why is it no? Why is it? No, that's where the work is. That's where the, we must reconcile this. Because this text pushes back against our knee-jerk understanding about what Jesus is praying for here. And why I say this knee-jerk misunderstanding that we have, it's this false understanding that, that many in the church have, this a silent, unspoken misconception that, that, that if we are good, faithful Christians, then God will not let bad things happen to us. There are so many people in the church that silently believe that. And you know we believe that. We know we bought into that because when something bad happens, we suddenly go, how could God let this happen? How is it possible? How could it be? And it's like we haven't forgotten that we're in a fallen world. We haven't forgotten, but we started to buy this false idea that if we're good, if we obey, if we go to church, then bad things won't happen to us. That God won't let bad things happen to us. Now, it's true that if one who loves the Lord, loves God, loves neighbor, and lives out their life, they're going to experience a lot of blessing. There's a lot of good things that come with that. A lot of, avoid a lot of pitfalls, a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow. Okay, that's absolutely true. But we know that doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen to you. The Bible has a whole book written about when bad things happen to good people. We already talked about it. The book of Job. But likewise, there's a misunderstanding that people have when they look at this text and, and see that it, and think that if Jesus prays for someone's faith to fail, then that must mean that that faith will only be manifested in, in absolute bold perfection without any doubts, no major problems. But then why does Jesus say, Peter, don't worry, I've prayed for your, that, you, that your faith won't fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers? I've prayed that your faith won't fail, so after you've repented of, of denying me, strengthen your brothers in the grace of God. That's what he says. It seems paradoxical. It doesn't make sense unless we realize that our definition of unfailing faith 
need, it, it needs some modification. Our definition of what unfailing faith looks like needs some modification. Because apparently, Jesus' conception of unfailing faith includes struggle, deep, momentary failure, repentance, and the fellowship of the church body. I got all that from what he said. What this teaches us is that God uses the wrestling, struggles, instances of serious moral and spiritual failure of his own disciples as a means of strengthening his disciples in the faith. He does so by leading his disciples in repentance and by giving us grace. Peter must have reflected upon this moment when he was writing his first letter. Because he tells in 1 Peter 5, he tells the Christians how to resist the devil. And he says, how do you do it? By being firm in the faith. Well, how do you be firm in the faith? He says, by knowing, first of all, two things. First, by knowing that the suffering you're experiencing is, uh, is being shared by your brothers and sisters all around the world. You are not alone in your suffering. As much as you think you're alone, as much as you think no one understands, no one can understand what I'm going through, Peter says, no, your brothers and sisters across the world are sharing in your suffering afflictions. Don't think your suffering is special and unique. It is sharing, is being shared. And secondly, we resist the devil by being firm in our faith through our confidence that this too shall pass. A confidence that is rooted not in just, oh, it'll get better with time, just kind of this blind optimism, but a confidence that this will pass because we have a certain hope that, quote, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It is a dangerous place to be in if we begin to think that our sufferings or our struggles, that we're the only ones who have them and no one can understand us. I remember counseling a young man. He's not at this church several years ago. I was counseling a young man. Um, he called me. I was talking to him. And he had a very strong, particular struggle with sin. And he concluded that... It was, that it was it, that God had made him that way. That God had made him that way. And that, uh, and that he was really struggling because God had given him such a strong desire, particularly with lust. And I was counseling him saying, God did not give you a strong, lustful desire. And I pointed to the scriptures that say, you know, you haven't resisted. It, <laughs> The author of Hebrews says, uh, uh, you know you've resi you're really resisting and fighting against temptation when you're bleeding. He says, if you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood, you, you haven't tried fighting sin hard enough yet. <laughs> That's what the author of Hebrews says. All right? and so I was like, look, you, you're, you're blaming God for the struggles that you have. And what he was also saying is that he was unique. And so thus, scriptures didn't apply to him. Thus, other things didn't apply to him. And so he could make unique decisions apart from the scriptures. And that's what happens when we make our struggles, our sorrows, our hardships unique 
and act as though no one's ever struggled with these things. No one's ever con can ever comprehend. Yeah, they can't comprehend your. We can't literally put ourselves in other people's shoes. I get that. All right, your struggles are not my struggles, and I can't say I know exactly what you're going through and feeling and experiencing and all that. I can't. We can't do that. But we also can't say you can't possibly understand what I've gone through. Okay, because it's it's honestly it's a form of pride of saying that my struggles are so unique no one can ever understand them. Like, I think the grace of God, the gospel can. The word of God can. And it applies. And so we, and so we, so we avoid this pitfall by knowing that our suffering is shared and that also it will end. That God will bring it to an end. That his grace will meet our needs. His grace will comfort our sorrows. I'm not saying that the hard situation you're dealing with right now will come to a joyful conclusion. What I am saying is that it's Peter's confidence that the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself personally restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you forever. That is your hope. And that is the secret to unfailing faith. Peter's faith, our faith, will not fail ultimately, maybe momentarily, but not ultimately, because Christ intercedes for us. Christ is enough for the apostle Peter and his denial of him. Christ is enough for you. He's enough for me. Finally, we have Peter's correction in verses 33 to 34. Unsurprisingly, Peter doesn't get it. I doubt that any of us would in this moment. And so he puffs out his chest and gets his deepest, manliest voice and puts forth some uh, foolhardy bravado. I'm ready to go to prison and to death for you, O Lord. But Peter, like many in the church, has that conception of unfailing faith that has no place for weakness, temptation, affliction, suffering, or momentary failure. It makes no room for the struggles and failures against, against, against the flesh. And this blinds Peter to the hard temptation that is coming down the tracks, one that is about to just run him over. He's not going to get out of the way. It's going to run him right over. And if we sit here today, and the only thing as God's people we agree on today is that we are all really great, wonderful Christians that have no struggles, well, then we better buckle up because our world's about to get rocked individually and as a church. And Satan is about to feed. He's looking for someone to devour. And people who deny their struggles prime targets because they'll never see him coming but thankfully jesus doesn't leave peter or us in that place but he confronts peter with his impending failure which reveals what i can only call the convicting comfort of the knowledge of christ jesus corrects peter saying no no no, peter you're not ready to die for me you're not going to go to prison for me you're going to do the exact opposite before the day is over, before the rooster crows three times, you're going you're gonna to say, you don't even know me. 
Jesus' words are convicting here because they destroy any Christian bravado that we may be banging our chests with today. I mean, think about it. What sins has, has, did Jesus know about that you or I would commit before we did them? All of them, right? While we were singing songs of, of our loyalty and love for Christ, what wrongs did Jesus know that we would do later? There was no standing on our laurels or even on our feet when we are before Jesus. He knows. He knows not only the things we have done, he knows the things we will do. He knows. He knows the things we're hiding. He knows them. And he loves us. He knows. And he dies. He knows. And he resurrects. He knows and he blesses. He knows and he calls and he justifies and he sanctifies and he, and he glorifies. Because he knows. He knows us. And he loves us. Now in time, Peter will go to prison. He will go to death. He will be crucified upside down because he refuses to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. He says, that's too clean and high for me. You put me upside down. And they were more than happy to accommodate. But instead of Peter going with Jesus now, Jesus goes with Peter by the Spirit. The desire of Satan to sift the disciples is still as strong as it ever was today. He wants to sift you, Christian. But your faith will not fail. Because Christ has prayed for you. He intercedes for you. He lives to intercede for you. And because he does... Let us cast off any false humility, Christian bravado, whatever it is, and take up that one great secret of unfailing faith, the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then let us put on the armor of God and fight the fight of the faith. Let us turn and strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ that we may run this race steadfastly together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have such a great and wonderful Savior in Jesus, that he sees through us, he knows our wrongs, he knows what we're going to do, and yet he loves us, he abides with us, he does not abandon us, you do not abandon us, all for the sake of your Son, all by the power of your Spirit, all by grace through faith. And Father, we give you the praise. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not be lulled to sleep because we don't believe that Satan or is active, that we don't believe the flesh is something to be daily making war against. We pray, Father, that you would give us a spiritual awareness of our great and deep and abiding need, that we would run to Christ and be strengthened and refreshed 
in the grace of the gospel and that we would be oriented, uh, Lord, to the path of holiness and obedience and that we would go to your word, that we would go to prayer, that we would go to the means of grace that you have given to us, that we would link arms with our brothers and sisters in Christ and strengthen one another because the battle is real. It is spiritual, but it is no less real. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless your church, strengthen and protect your church in this way. And, Lord, we pray this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Well, let's.